Welcome to another ABC Radio National podcast. For more information, go to abc.net.au slash rn. Today, the fifth Boyer Lecture, presented by Professor Graham Clark. In his fourth lecture last week, Professor Clark described his feelings just before and after his first ever operation to place a bionic ear in a patient. We heard the tests being done as the man tried to respond and his remarkably well-spoken words in reply, the sounds of history being made. Here, with his theme of restoring the senses, is the 48th Boyer lecturer, Dr Graham Clark, and the next stage in the story of the bionic ear, children. Up to this point, we have learned that without our senses, we would be just a brain in a bony cavity hardly even able to think. We have learned, too, that the brain connections for the senses are beautifully organised. But when we are born, we have an excess of connections, and during the early plastic phase in brain development, the ones that are used are retained, while the others atrophy. The resulting network of nerves and brain cells can then effectively process incoming sensory signals. In 1985, our bionic ear, as we called it in Australia, was the first multi-channel implant approved by the US Food and Drug Administration for speech understanding in adults who had some measure of hearing before going deaf. We had reconnected the world of sound to human consciousness. Our capacity to make this connection seemed to rely on how their already mature brain connections were refined by exposure to sound. But would this be possible in children born deaf, in whom the sense organ of hearing had failed to develop and the brain connections had not been stabilised? This was the next major challenge for us. If children had never been exposed to sound, would electrical stimuli get through to their consciousness and be interpreted as speech? I was passionate about helping deaf children to communicate in a world where spoken language is the norm. As I said in the first lecture, we are a vocal species, and our speech is crucial to communication. Helen Keller, who went blind and deaf at an early age, eloquently expressed what it meant to her when she learned to speak. In the story of my life, she wrote, No deaf child who has earnestly tried to speak the words which he has never heard to come out of the prison of silence, where no tone of love, no song of bird, no strain of music ever pierces the stillness, can forget the thrill of surprise, the joy of discovery, which came over him when he uttered his first word. My journey to give spoken language to deaf children was a little like the story of Pilgrim's Progress to the Celestial City. Doubting Castle and Giant Despair loomed large on the way, but fortunately faithful friends were there to encourage me. After I had carried out the first implant on a child in 1985, the improvements were a little slower to appear than in adults who had previously had some hearing. Strong criticism from a small number of academics supporting the signing deaf community claimed that I was unethical because I was apparently repressing deaf culture, 
that is, signing culture, by trying to give opportunities to deaf children to communicate in a world of sound. Then, from another quarter, came the voices of animal liberationists who objected to me doing safety research on primates. I was guided by the ethics of human experimentation established by the National Health and Medical Research Council of Australia, the World Medical Assemblies in 1969 and 1975, and later the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child in 1989. But before I operated on my first child, I also had to be convinced the bionic ear was effective and safe for adults who had hearing before going deaf. Not only did we trial the nucleus implant on six adults in Australia, but then on 40 adults in the United States, Germany and Australia. I also had to know that the implant was better than other alternatives, such as presenting speech as patterns of skin stimulation. Stimulating the skin for speech understanding was thought by some to be as effective as the single-channel implants being used in the US, and had the advantage of not invading the body. The skin is akin to the ear. They both have similar embryological origins and respond to vibrations. So from early 1980, I did try to see if there were better ways of hearing through the skin. The idea of hearing through the skin is the result of an amazing ability of the brain to convert stimuli from one sense to the other. For example, a visual image has been represented as patterns of tactile stimulation on the skin of a subject's back. After training, the blindfolded volunteers learn to experience the image from the video camera on the back as the scene in front of them. The conscious experience can become so real that when the camera is zoomed in, the person ducks, thinking the image is coming towards them. One method of tactile stimulation for hearing speech was to use vibrators, which were large, consumed a lot of power and needed big batteries. Alternatively, electrical stimulation of the skin was used, but this excited pain fibres. Both methods gave the conscious experience of speech, but mostly of rhythm and voicing. I had a grant from a company to explore these two alternatives, but my research money started to run out. We had not really found a satisfactory way of using either procedure in a person's daily life, and so I faced having to terminate the program. On the last day, I offered my arm in a sacrificial way to be the guinea pig for electrical stimulation, which I considered had more chance of being made portable for children than the large vibrators, some of which were even being sighted on the chest. To my surprise, I found that when the electrical current excited either side of my fingers, the sensation was much more pleasant. I realised from my anatomical knowledge that the electrical current was stimulating the digital nerves of the fingers. From that came the idea of using the fingers of the hand to represent the place coding of frequencies in the inner ear. The frequencies stimulating the fingers could be presented in an orderly way like the keys on a piano keyboard. 
in this case, the notes or frequencies came to the fingers rather than the fingers to the notes. We then developed a glove that could administer stimuli on each finger to represent various speech frequencies. To demonstrate that this would be fine for children, I offered our son Jonathan as the first guinea pig. He walked around without losing electrical contact and did not mind the stimuli. Nevertheless, we did not finally develop the tactile method because my other alternative for the bionic ear was being trialled and giving better results. There was a more vivid sound experience than with the skin, it was more convenient to wear, and more additional coding schemes could be evaluated. So what adaptations were needed to make the bionic ear suitable for a child? For one thing, the implant had to be made thinner for the child's skull. While the surgery varied little from that of the adult, since the middle and inner ears are adult size at birth, the growth of the skull had to be allowed for. It also had to have a magnet in the centre of the external transmitting coil and the internal implanted coil, so they could be accurately and easily aligned by children and not dislodged when they played games. Reliability was particularly important for the device's use in children. A fault in an adult could be explained to them as part of the risk to be accepted. But children are not as capable of making decisions about risk-taking, and with their lives still ahead of them, we couldn't take any chances. With young children, we also had to be sure they did not have enough residual hearing to benefit from a hearing aid. An implant could destroy this remnant. At first, some hearing clinicians felt a hearing loss could not be diagnosed accurately under four years of age, using standard behavioural tests. But our research showed that hearing levels could be found in children soon after birth, by recording brain waves in response to sound. It was also clear to me that the best results would be achieved through a partnership between the surgical and audiological team and the partnership would need to include specialised care from the educators of the hearing impaired. So in 1985, I started by implanting the device in older children and then worked back in age. If some benefits occurred in the older ones, then it was likely that the results would be better on younger children, whose brains are more plastic. It was interesting that in the second child, a ten-year-old, the first experiences of sound were localised to the trunk. This suggests children have to learn to relate the sensation to the part of the body being stimulated and represented in the brain. The encouraging results with our first young patients led to the start of a world trial for the US Food and Drug Administration to learn whether the bionic ear would be effective for regular clinical use at centres throughout the country. But these early operations aroused a storm of criticism from a naturally defensive signing deaf community. Some of the criticism arose because the single channel implant used in the United States did not give significant benefits in understanding speech. The fears, however, were more fundamental. 
the signing deaf community had developed a philosophy that deafness was normal, so hearing by any means was a threat to this view. If the implant were successful, their community would be greatly reduced in size, and the community was their world. There was also a fear that doctors wanted to exploit deaf people by operating for financial gain. This was certainly not the case, and now in India, for example, surgeons subsidise the cost of the implant through other private operations, because of the joy they receive in giving hearing to people. Anyone who works in a cochlear implant clinic will tell you that the job satisfaction is tremendous, and that people with implants become more like friends than patients. But at the time, in February 1986, the depth of feeling in the deaf community was expressed in articles in the United States. One is headlined, Cochlear Implants, The Final Put-Down. It says, hearing people almost always believe that deaf people need to be cured. It went on to say, a majority culture has no understanding of how deaf people live day to day. It doesn't fit in with their culture. So they try to do something to change it. Deaf people see the implant as yet another trick foisted off by the medical community to deny us validity as deaf. This was taken from a magazine called The Disability Rag in 1986. At Gallaudet University, established for deaf students, the view of some was that the problem is really not about deafness, but people. It is important for them as people with normal hearing to give thought to fixing their attitudes, to fixing their insensitivity to communicating with deaf people, to increasing their knowledge of deafness. What if I am happy as I am? What if I prefer that they accept me as the individual that I am? To many deaf people, the reliance on implants and other cures as solutions to their problems is society's way of getting off the hook when it comes to accepting deafness. This article also appeared in the Disability Rag in 1986. I could understand some of the points they made. I knew from my own experience with my father how unaware the average person is of the plight of deaf people trying to communicate. I also knew the dignity sign language had given to deaf people. On the other hand, if we could give deaf people the ability to hear speech and communicate in a world of sound, they would have more scope and more opportunities in life. It was ironic that I was now confronted by the very people I wanted to help hear. The criticisms affected all the members of our team and weighed heavily on us. We firmly believed in the benefits, but they were slow to arrive. It takes time even for a hearing child to learn to listen and speak. The nerve connections in the brain have to adjust. This delay in results stoked the antagonism towards us for operating on children. It wasn't until experienced educators of the deaf finally were able to say this was the best advance they had seen that I started to relax. Specialised audiological and educational input was vital to the process. There has long been debate on the best methods of educating deaf children. 
the introduction of the bionic ear is starting to change it all. Since the results are at least comparable to those for severely deaf children who use a hearing aid, an educational method can be used that maximises hearing and concentrates on developing listening skills and lip-reading. As a result, such children can attend mainstream schools. The results from the bionic ear were clearly better the younger the child was when he or she had the operation, so I started to think about operating before the age of two. Some years earlier, such a proposal would have been vetoed by any hospital ethics committee. Safety studies now became a number one priority. I was fortunate to be awarded a US National Institutes of Health contract to investigate first if drilling a bed in the skull to sight the bionic ear interfered with head growth. Second, it was essential to find out how to ensure that a pneumococcal middle ear infection did not spread to the inner ear and cause meningitis. I found that if the point where the electrode bundle entered the inner ear was sealed with body tissue and care taken not to injure the inner ear, the risk of meningitis would be minimal. But to be as sure as possible, we later decided immunisation should also be carried out. How glad I was that we had done those early safety studies when in 2003 there were serious complications from meningitis seen in another product from a different company. They had failed to consider adequately the importance of sealing the entry point to the inner ear, thus allowing the inner ear and the brain to become vulnerable to the middle ear infections that most parents know are common in young children. This only further emphasised for me that it is very important for engineers to work side by side with medical scientists for any device that is to be implanted inside a person. Since brain plasticity is greatest when a child is young, it is not surprising that the results obtained in speech and language, as well as hearing, improved the younger the child at surgery, even as early as six months. Just as children need to explore their surroundings to become visually aware, so too do they have to learn the meaning of the auditory symbols which become words. So for children with or without a bionic ear, early education with speech and language is essential. In deafened experimental animals, the visual cortex invades the area of the cortex normally occupied by hearing, and deaf children are extra sensitive to visual stimuli too. This helps them with lip reading. But for them to hear speech sounds, particularly in background noise, they need to be specially educated to enable the auditory cortex to take over its rightful area. For this they need extra practice in using listening skills. Exciting new findings show that results with the bionic ear have continued to improve to a point where deaf children can develop near normal spoken language, particularly if they are also operated on at a young age, preferably before their first birthday. So now we would want to provide every deaf child with the opportunity to communicate using spoken language, 
and to develop their true potential by giving them a bionic ear. If the wider community considers that all children should have proper mainstream schooling, then why not deaf children? This would fulfil the 1989 United Nations Declaration that children should be educated to develop their personality, talents and physical abilities to their fullest extent. I will now play you an audio tape of a child at Mount View Primary School who has been educated to develop her listening skills. The life-changing experiences for children using the bionic ear are very touching and rewarding. My name is Amy Williams. I was born in Darwin. When I was nine months old, my mum and dad found out that I was deaf. When I was one and a half, I had to come to Melbourne to have my operation. It was for my cochlear implant so that I could hear. The bionic ear has opened up a whole new world to deaf children. Helped by the plasticity of their brains in adjusting to new signals, they can now stand equal to their hearing peers in their ability to communicate through the use of spoken language. They can develop friendships, progress at school, socialise with ease, experience greater emotional security and later get jobs. But the journey to help deaf people is not over while deaf adults and children with the bionic ear continue to have some trouble hearing a noise and their ability to hear music quality is poor. Furthermore, the bionic ear, which is the first clinically successful device to restore sensory brain function, has opened up a new discipline, medical bionics. We hope this will in the future also help people who are blind or who cannot feel or move limbs because of nerve and spinal cord injuries and with other disabilities. The opportunities for this discipline of medical bionics are great and will be discussed in the next lecture. Professor Graham Clark of the Bionic Institute in Melbourne. He's also a visiting professor at the University of Wollongong in New South Wales. I'm Robin Williams. See you next week. You've been listening to another ABC Radio National podcast. ABC Radio National, on air and online, with many of our programs available as podcasts or MP3 downloads. All the details at abc.net.au slash rn slash podcast. Podcast.